Hi, everybody. I bring you heartfelt greetings from the wife of my youth, 45 years. Soon I'll be married this past July. And our anniversary date is the 24th of July, if you want to start saving for our 50th anniversary present. But uh, she's the love of my life, and uh, my soulmate is still like giving me the sort of sulky treatment because we went to Paris without her. <laughs> but she did say, if you can't, I can't come with you to Paris, please bring a stock of perfumes. That, uh, <laughs> so I'm trying to do the best I can with that. Folk, I hope you can understand and hear some of the themes and threads coming through the feedback is that uh, we're on the front foot but we're a movement with a limp. We're not defining ourselves as, uh, as those robust guys who've just got it all covered. This is going to take some time, and with it, it comes with the gift of opportunity for self-reflection. I don't want to primarily, in my session here, address... Uh, what's gone down with PJ, Stephen, Ryan. We, the global team have been intimately involved with that. I'm now Stephen, Ryan, and Anna's pastor. And we love them so deeply. And what I share today is not a reflection on either of these people. I'm just wondering if God is not also giving us a gift in this time. And the danger of it is we start to audit everything outside of us and not our own lives, our own leadership call. Things like 1 Timothy 3, all those qualifications. I found myself, when I went through them again recently, beginning to realize that I saw, it, I saw that list of qualifications as a door into something, not a curriculum for my own maturity, not something that I should go and from time to time reflect on and, uh, and open my heart to the Lord. I mean, it's quite an amazing mirror to our leadership lives. And I think in 21st century celebrity style leadership and where the matrix for whether you're making it is all about the bums on seats, the bucks in the bank, and uh, yeah, the size of your staff and all of those kind of things. Uh, even we in our common ground story of been going in, in recent times through sort of deeper dives on what are our blind spots, our leadership blind spots. And uh, yeah, I can't say that it's been easy, but we're on the front foot in this. We're not on the back foot. We're on the front foot. We're saying, God, we need you to help us. We need the helpfulness of God to put our defenses down be able to possibly see what we're missing. I want to speak to us about reclaiming a redemptive vision for fallen leaders. And I know exactly what's going on in our minds right now. We're thinking of someone else. Reclaiming a redemptive vision for failed or fallen leaders, it's so important that we have this conversation. It's a massive topic, and I'm just hoping to lay you know, write chapter one in our hearts that we would be so engraced 
and equipped by the Lord to start to live and lead and behave in a certain way. Let's be humble enough to admit today that if I were to present a spectrum of weakness over here to wickedness over here, we could position ourselves somewhere on that continuum. And uh, at what point on that continuum does somebody blow it so badly? What's the, what's, how do you work out if you're, you know, self-seeking, a little bit entitled, huh, prideful, self-centered, sexually tempted. We have a matrix that I'm not quite sure the New Testament explains it just like that, but what I do want to do is just get us in the conversation. So maybe do that exercise. Uh, aren't you absolutely amazed that you've been qualified for ministry? <laughs> because we didn't come into this perfect. And we have this checklist that says, hey, if I've come through, I, I've, I've made it. But actually, I have found after four decades of ministry that I'm still a work in progress. And I have been surprised at some of my blind spots that have emerged from time to time. My wife doesn't see them. She thinks I'm absolutely perfect. <laughs> but by way of introduction, I just really want to call us not to sit like spectators to a process and miss the gift that God is bringing to us at this time to hold the Word of God to, up to our lives as a, as a mirror. And in that, to also anticipate the grace of God, not just to make us aware of where we need to mature and grow and be forgiven and, and, and where, what we need to overcome, but also become a vin, a convinced on the front foot of God's sufficiency. Because when he said yes to making you and I an adopted son, and by sheer scandalous grace to say, and I'm going to count you faithful, putting you into the ministry... He can't be disillusioned with you because he had no illusions about you in the first place. He knew that sanctification is a doctrine not for those that we lead. It's a doctrine for our own lives. It's a leadership sanctification agenda that God has put on the table in our moment in history. I want to help us, all of us, grow in this and experience a leadership transformation not around competency, but around heart. There are two frontiers that the gospel moves forward on. Number one, the uttermost parts of the world. Number two, the innermost parts of our hearts. And where is most of our effort focused and planned? And when God gets to both, Proverbs 16 says, better a patient man in the most part of the heart than a warrior. Better a man who can control his temper than one who can take a city. 
We need to get both, but he's, the emphasis is, the, the Holy Spirit says, better a man who can get it right on the inside. Because friends, if we get it right on the outside and we don't get it right on the inside, we're going to lose the outside. Amen. I want you to notice God is not all that committed to, to impression management or reputation management. You read the New Testament, it seems like all our stuff gets recorded there. All the stuff we do wrong. We are not made to look perfect. Leaders fail. This leader has failed. I want you to know that I am speaking today out of a very, very real track record. 26 years ago, I had time out of ministry. And I needed that time out of ministry because early in my life, those fault lines were surfaced by the grace of God because He loved me enough. And I am so, so grateful that I can speak out of this. And I want to say to you, I got my limp. Yes, I'm a confident guy. Yes, I live with strong convictions. But I am so aware of my personal leadership limp through my whole last 25 years. And that, out of that limp was born the common ground story. It's not a success story. It's just we marvel. Soon I giggle all the time like kids because we know what we came out of. And we just say, oh God, thank you so much for moving in on us and exposing those fault lines in our hearts. Our culture teaches us to hold it under wraps, to keep it down, not to become vulnerable, not to have a confessing community around us. Accountability that is required of us does not work. Accountability that we choose to give is what the Holy Spirit is wanting to stir in us and call us to. While so many people are riveted by leadership failure porn, I think that's the language called, from the rise and fall of Mars Hill, we're all sitting on the sidelines watching the stories and doing audits on everyone else. I honestly say, let's get the gift. Let's be a movement that's on the front foot, moving toward God and toward each other and saying, help me, help me, help me, help me. And Satan is in no hurry to get us. He'll wait for those moments where we hit the absolute heights, the most fruitful, and then it comes in a most dramatic way. I have a personal conviction. It doesn't have to be yours. I don't believe we have a leadership crisis in the church. I think we have a discipleship crisis in leadership. I think there's an intimacy with Christ Vacuum. I think we've neglected formation. We've neglected that innermost part of the heart work, the soul work, the kind of person we're coming. If you ask any individual leader, what's your vision for the kind of person you want to become? They don't know what to say. I'm not talking about in this room, it's guys in other forums. We've got leadership vision for our church. We can articulate like that. Vision, values, boom, ethos. We can describe what we're building. Can we describe the work of sanctifying grace in our own hearts and lives? 
And we need a gospel-centered vision for the redemption of our leadership, not when, not after we've fallen, before we fall. We need a culture of review built into our churches. If we don't at least once a year have safe and honest uh, conversations when we, uh, as, as lead elders, we need to set the bar for that. We need to set that. You're not king of the castle called to, to audit all your staff and your workers and you're the boss. You're the servant leader. You're first among. You say, guys, I so don't want to uh, uh, place myself outside of the need for leadership sanctification or strengthening. So I am, I nearly said victim, <laughs> but we have a culture in common ground where every year, everyone gets reviewed. I've just come through my review, and uh, I always think it's, it's a no-surprise culture, so lots of affirmation, lots of prophetic confidence around where we're going, but they talk to me about some of the things. I used to drift into meetings and just think, oh, this is so boring. News 24 on my cell phone. I just, I just went to another, I just thought, oh, these guys are going round and round the circle. And anyway, I'm not leading a congregation. I don't need to listen to all their waffle, and I'm sitting there. Sports page, Manchester United, take a bit of a Prozac for that. And then, and then, and then Ryan would say, send me a text in the meeting. Hey, Rig, we need you in the room. Will the, will the island key please return to the mainland? sit there and I'm thinking, who does he think he is? I'm the leader of this church. I started this whole movement. What are you doing? I don't think that. I used to. So God began. And then again, I realized, oh, we have so many ways we justify our drift from the high standard. Hope you get the first wave of what I'm trying to bring to us is more like just from my heart and what I long for us moving forward. I love what Brian shared. So when you marry somebody, you're not choosing the person that you could spend the rest of your life with. When you're marrying somebody, you're choosing the person you can't live the rest of your life without. We've done 12, 13 years of life and ministry together, and in some ways, without making it covenantal, like marriage covenant, We've agreed that we were going to be in this thing for better or for worse. We were going to find some things. And Paris for us has been such an amazing time of God just welding and forging us together in a, in a, in a, in a level of corporate conviction that, that just says, that's it, our swords are on the table. I can't imagine doing what I'm doing without Matt, without Brian, without Donnie, Alan, Eric, and even Ryan. <laughs> because Ryan and I have been co-leading Common Ground. You want to know something? You want, to, you want leadership sanctification? Put, God has been so kind to us. He's given us grace for the last seven years. We've been able to team and co-lead a church and a network of churches. It's been really, really exciting. The, the horrible part is I'm so glad that he, he couldn't come here. Because every time he comes and he's in a public space, he outshines me. And I'm just not quite that sanctified yet. So what I want us to do is just feed through a little mini 
leadership case study. The failure, the fall of Simon Peter and the way Jesus moves in on his life as a little window to help us expect how God might be right now moving in on our lives early or you can choose for late. So the brief overview is you know that Jesus is, uh, 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 Peter is brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew. And uh, this is just real high-level overview. And he's designated an apostle. He's a disciple. He's designated as apostle. Future apostolic pioneer. The book of Acts. You're in it, Peter. And he's invited into a lifelong relationship of following Jesus Christ in intimacy, in formation, and in mission. Jesus says, follow me, intimacy. I will make you become formation, fishers of men, mission. And of course, you watch how these fishermen, these immature or less mature or, you know, scatterbrained guys, or, or, or start to live their life around the orbit of the most perfect, powerful person who's ever graced our planet. Then, of course, we get to Matthew 16, and Jesus asks the questions at Caesarea Philippi. I've been there in those little half Colosseums, and pin is dropped there. The acoustics is just brilliant. Imagine this question ringing in the atmosphere of that time. As he says to his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jeremiah, all, you know, all, all the prophets, John the Baptist. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter just gate crashes the moment with this outburst of conviction. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, whatever it is. Did I get it right, Donnie? Son of that guy. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. <gasps> Can you imagine, Peter? I'm on a roll. <laughs> the other guys never saw it. I got a window. I saw heaven open, and I got the highest revelation on the deity and the glory and the the credentials of the God-man Jesus Christ whose gate crashed history. I got it right. Yay for me. And he says to him, you got it so right on that confession. I'm going to build my church, Simon Peter. That's what's going to keep this thing going. That's why we lean forward because that foundation is still there. We're Christ. This is not advances church. Christ is the head of the church. Says, and I'm giving you, you, you're Simon Peter, huh? You're the, the little rock, but on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And Simon, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, we loose in heaven. This is amazing. He says, not only do I get revelation, but I am the chosen door opener for the future of the church. Oh, yeah, I'm on a roll. How are you guys feeling? Other disciples. I'm being a little silly, just wanting to place us in the moment. And then Jesus starts to talk about his impending death, his suffering, 
the cross, the crucifixion. How does a guy who gets it so right in a few minutes gets it so wrong? And he starts to say, God forbid, that's not going to happen, etc., etc., etc. It's never going to happen. Man, it's the curriculum for the Messiah. The cross is in his future. And this little immature disciple is wanting to protest because it doesn't fit the paradigm. He doesn't have a suffering uh, agenda in his mind for Christ or for himself. That's our problem. We don't want a suffering Christ because if we're going to follow a suffering Christ, then we're going to be suffering followers. And so when he said, God forbid that that should happen to you, that's not the protest. Primarily, it's God forbid that should ever happen to me because of my association with you. The writing's on the wall. You can see where this thing is about to, to, to move. Of course, there are all kinds of other windows into this character, Simon Peter. But the one that got my attention is the disciples in Luke's gospel are having this interaction around who's the greatest in the kingdom. Da, 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 and Jesus has to correct them, give them a, curricul- a, a, a sort of a teaching on what kingdom leadership looks like, servanthood and all of that. But here's this. Jesus, in Luke 22, verse 29 to 30, says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Oh, yes, Lord, I've stayed with you in your trials. And I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink with me in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, my dear Peter, it doesn't get better than this. I mean, my future is just totally secure. And uh, here's what I got to think about. Just because God guarantees us a glorious future doesn't mean we're not sitting with leadership fault lines in our hearts. All the good things that God accomplishes through our lives says more about Him and His goodness and faithfulness than it does about us. Oh, I so hope we can can get this. Now look at me in the eye because this next one is going to blow your mind. What's the next verse? Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Look, we have to have a a vision for the restoration of leaders if this is anything to go by. Simon Satan, Satan has demanded to have you. Here's the thing, he's talking to all the disciples, and the you there is plural. Simon Simon and all your other guys, Satan has desired to have all of you and to sift you, plural, all of you, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, singular. 
See, all the brothers are in view of what's coming. Somewhere in your life, in my life, we will have a full frontal assault from the kingdom of darkness on our life, on our ministry, on our marriage. It's going to happen. Satan is after you. Let's not be naive. We are in a war between worlds. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you. Folk, at the heart of this whole story is a God who calls us, who equips us, who, who empowers us, who opens doors for us. And after nearly three years of public ministry with Jesus, Peter is saying, yes, all that stuff's in your future, but there's some stuff in your present that's about to break out on you. You better be in the fear of the Lord in this. And what did he pray? I've prayed that your faith may not fail. See, even the faith we have is a gift from God, and the one who is the grounds for that faith is praying for us right now in the heavens as our heavenly high priest. He's rooting for us. He wants us to pass the tests that come our way. He wants us to make progress in our leadership sanctification careful that we don't just do leadership failure porn. I would love us to boycott that. I'm not saying don't be aware. I'm saying how much time do we look at the burnt stones, the people that have blown it, and say, I want to have, a, I want to have faith for these guys. Some of it can be weakness. Some of it can be woundedness. Some of it can be wickedness in the... In the, in the Life of Simon Peter, what do you think it was? What's the hybrid? Is it his woundedness? don't think he had too much woundedness. He was just too self-assured. But there probably is a blend of wickedness and weakness in his life, and I am aware of that in mine, and my leaders are aware of that in my life, guys I work with and team with. Uh, I just want us to have a culture where we can have these conversations where we can admit these things about our, about our lives. And here's the absolute clincher. And when you have turned again, Simon, strengthen your brothers. I just think about this. Jesus anticipated his fall, and Jesus anticipated praying for him for restoration, and Jesus anticipated the final chapters of his life, what they would look like when you are restored, when you have turned. Strengthen your brothers. Now go and read the book of Acts. See him on the day of Pentecost. See him taking that key of the kingdom, putting it into Cornelius's world and opening up things for the Gentiles. See him writing those two magnificent epistles to a suffering church. Something has happened in his theology. He's moved away from his personal quest for comfort, entitlement, triumphalism, and he's had this conversion. You go and read his letters. He's so comfortable, so comfortable and at peace with this suffering Messiah who's been gloriously raised and is now head of the church. 
So many more things we could say about Simon Peter. I want to spend the second part of my talk just talking about his, his restoration, some of the process of restoration, because that can equip and inform us a little more around, uh, around how we can work more skillfully with that. Um, as Alan was just telling us in Paris, that he's got six pastors from different environments, and, and, and some of it is woundedness, uh, there may be some with weakness, I'm not aware of any wickedness, but I'm just saying, there are so many leaders that have come to the end of themselves, and I'd love our churches, and I'd love us as a movement to be able to say, welcome, come with us, Numbers 10, 29, come with us, we'll do you good. That's not a promise of profile, it's a promise of care, it's a promise of uh, gospel, grace, anticipation. So you all know Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Let's say it together. If you see anyone overtaken in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of humility and be careful lest you also are tempted. Don't you find it amazing Paul's writing to a church, he's about to close the letter to the Galatian church, and uh, uh, a part of his, you know, Christianity 101 manual is you're going to have this kind of stuff happening in church life. What is it about us? We just think, oh no, don't tell me so-and-so did this or so-and-so did this. If you see anyone. And then it says you who are spiritual, and the Greek word there, you, is again plural. In other words, Paul is saying the restoration of people that have fallen into sin is a community project. It's not just left to a few elders. Everybody needs to have a heart like it. It's in the letter. We need to have a redemptive vision for the restoration of, of failed saints and failed leaders. If you see anyone overtaken in a transgression or fault, think weakness to wickedness, the full range. You who are spiritual, collaborate in humility, on your knees, with gentleness, to, to see them restored. I know some of you are thinking, what do you do when there's no repentance? We're going to get there. We'll get there. So what does this restoration of Peter, which we see evidenced in the New Testament, what does it teach us in terms? What does it teach us in terms of wisdom for leaders that have disqualified themselves in various ways? Hmm. When it comes to Peter, we're not talking about someone who had like a little casual drift. The word denial is used three times. I mean, he went full frontal, total, out of fear. He denied knowledge of Jesus. There's a tendency to want to make this like a oops. Oh, just a little oops. No, this is a denial. And many, most commentators say this is a terrible sin that this leader has committed. And uh, just to frame it, but whoever denies me before others... I will also deny before my Father in heaven. 
I don't want to overwork this, but I just want to give it a little bit of gravitas here. This is, this is Peter, you know, the, the, the guy with the keys, <laughs> the guy who is going to open up the Gentile world in the gospel. This is Peter. And what compounds this is Peter was told by Jesus he was about to do it. And Jesus, a Peter, tells Jesus, no, you're wrong. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to do it. And Peter gives him his word. No, it can't happen. Not under my watch of me. That's the problem, of course. And so now we have betrayed trust on top of a betrayed witness. So let's revisit the scene of restoration. In John chapter 21, from 15 to 19, when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Folk, this is beautiful. Remember, he had whippetily gone out, go back fishing, or feed my lambs. There's a recommissioning here. Second time he asks him. The commentators say that the three Interrogation questions around Peter's affection are directly related to his three denials. Second time he asked them, Simon, son of, son of uh, John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. Oh, bingo! <laughs> the moment had arrived! He thought he knew better. Suddenly he realized his whole life was an open book before the laser eyes of Christ. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. <laughs> Folk, he's restored not just in his relationship. He's restored just, yes, to ministry, but he's actually restored to a new kind of theology. He's restored. He has delivered from personal quest for freedom, from pain to understanding that the gospel calls us to suffer well. After this, he said to him, what did he tell him? Go for competency classes to be able to preach to a mixed audience on the day of Pentecost. What was the last thing he says? He says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Remember, that's how it started. Ministry doesn't start with getting a crown, getting a pulpit, getting profile. It's follow me. It's intimacy. So the first big point we want to see, a help, to, a help came to me from some of the Vineyard guys, Piper on this, Jared Wilson on this, and some of my own musings because of living in this year. It's been the most difficult year of my life. Spare me no pity. It's been the most difficult year of my life. I have never felt more stretched 
by the kinds of conversations we've had to have this year. But I have never been more stretched into the grace of God. He's the one who gives more grace. First big point to see is that the restoration of failed leadership is possible. Can you say glory? It is amazing. It's possible for believers, but in the context of these passages we read, it's about Simon Peter. And the thing you want to be able to see in this, uh, uh, a broken, humble leader who is repentant, the gist of it is you cannot out the grace of God as far as your sin may go. The grace of God goes further still. The second thing that's obvious from here is that the restoration in view here is not only to fellowship with Christ, it's also to leadership. Feed my lambs. Now we've got a problem, hey? Some of you are thinking, Jesus, didn't you read our 21st century manuals on the timelines for restoring people? Well, actually, there's a lot of nuance that Jesus led us in, left us in this process. The interjection between, Piper says, the interjection between each question and answer of feed my lambs, tend my sheep, would indicate that Peter is not simply being just restored to good graces, but he's being restored to a ministerial office. Third thing to notice is that beyond these two first two points, restoration is graciously total and requalification for ministry is possible. If we left it there, I wouldn't have satisfied so much of what we deal with in church life. What I'm amazed at is, did Jesus know all of this stuff, the fault lines in Peter, before he fell? Well, obviously, our understanding of the sovereignty of God, those things were were known to him, and Jesus sort of, this is what's going to happen in the distant future, this is what's going to happen in the present, and after the present, I'm going to restore you. So there's a sense in which God is never caught off guard, and he never just, I mean, the mission of, his mission he came to establish was going to continue, and it does continue. On the day of Pentecost, you see this, this acceleration of gospel traction into the world. So the New Testament seems to anticipate both leadership failure, church discipline, and restoration to both fellowship with Christ, with one another, and also to ministry. Then Jared Wilson comes along and he says, okay, yes, true, tick, 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 tick. But, but, and if you come up again tomorrow this time, I'll share the rest with you. So the question Jared Wilson asks is, when a pastor has disqualified himself from ministry, is he disqualified from ministry altogether? If so, for how long? Can he ever be restored? If so, how soon? I'm so glad you're asking these questions. <laughs> so let's start with, well, what disqualifies a pastor, a church leader? What are the kind of things? And uh, in my four decades... Uh, it's been interesting, but in recent times, it feels like God's purifying flame, the standard has been raised. It's always been there in the Scriptures. 
And I think our general sense is you're disqualified if you've stolen the money, slept with somebody who's not your wife, or, uh, you know, have, have, have just uh, exploited the power dy dynamics and you've bruised and hurt your leadership team. But there's this list from 1 Peter 3, from Titus 1, from 1 Peter 5, that calls us to a certain kind of Christ-following lifestyle. It's not a list of morality. It's a list of what our lives would look like as we follow Jesus in discipleship. We'll be sexually and maritally faithful. A good manager of our own household. Humble. Say that out loud. How do you know if you're humble? You don't. How do you know if you're proud? Proudful. Prideful. You don't. It takes the community of God's people to interact together in ways that we say, guys, the stakes are so high, I so don't want to have a ministry defined by pride. How do you know if you're gentle? We could keep going on. And that's a qualification. We're sober. It's not just about our use of red juice from the cape. That thing of being sober. Uh, uh, Matt, give me the word for sober. Another word for sober. Uh, temperate? Yeah. You're sober. You carry the weight of issues. You're not, you're not light. You're not frivolous. You're sober about what the things we're contending with. But Alan's word is, is just as good as mine, but maybe not as good as mine. But <laughs> we're heading in. <laughs> you're humble. <laughs> you see. You see. i got mates who call me. <laughs> Peaceful. Financially responsible. And generous, hospitable, not just open home, open heart, making room for people, self-controlled, upright in character, committed to holiness, able to teach, spiritually mature, not new converts, respectable with outsiders. We started phoning marketplace elders. I said, can I speak to your CEO, your boss, or your manager? I did that. The guy, that, the guy thought I was smoking something. And I said, hey, I'm just phoning to find out how this guy is. We're thinking of appointing him as a leader. Uh, what would you say? Why would you want my opinion? What's it got to do with me? It wasn't about him. It was about the guy coming into, into eldership. A good example to the flock. All these are evidences of what is required to come into pastoral office. And what we fail to do is go into audit when somebody fails. We've got this other list. Are they watching porn? None of that's in this list. I think it's implied in the list, but we have the so-called spectacular sins that disqualify. And folk, what I think part of what God's calling us to are the sins of neglect. We're neglecting to audit around the innermost part of the world because all of these things are the, su the subterranean, beneath-the-water things that, 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 that we need to be working on. And so, yes, 
Can disqualified pastors be restored? Yes, they can. We looked at that. Uh, But what are they restored to? And the agenda very often is, oh, I can't wait for that guy to be restored, and we want to restore him too. Because the pastoral burdens got heavy for us. We want to get the guy in too early. We want, to, we, want, we want help. We want muscle. And we'll use the muscle. And what we do, I think we grieve the sanctifying processes of God in a person. You see, the primary thing God wants to restore fallen people to, saints, sinners, leaders, is to himself. What I'm finding in, when I'm dealing with, uh, over the years, when I'm dealing with leadership, leaders that fail, they are not immediately aware of their need for God. They're more managing their embarrassment, their loss, their personal pain, their sense of humiliation, their longing to get back to all the privileges they had. They're not seeing, hey, I've wandered from God in my calling. You need to restore people, first of all, to God himself. But then can a person be restored to pastoral office? We said yes, Jesus did with Peter. But the timeline, how soon, how long should it take? One of your favorite pastors, John MacArthur, says never. (laughs) If you've blown it, that's it. I've read uh, some of how he and Papa have gone toe-to-toe on it. Uh, No, he and Jared Wilson. But um, he uses that passage in Corinthians that, uh, you know, I beat my body that, you know, in case I disqualify myself. He uses that. But that's not uh, about uh, moral disqualification of leaders. It's about a contextualization exercise of I do everything I can to be able to identify in multicultural, multicontextual things. So I do this stuff, and it's for the sake of the gospel. This is not about. I'm going to be disqualified from ministry. So what is the best way? I'm so glad you've asked this this question again. Nobody can be restored to God without repentance. Nobody can be restored to ministry without repentance. The only person who forgave a leader in a relatively short period of time and restored him in a relatively short period of time is the person with perfect perspective. As the cock cock crowed for Peter three times, Peter's eyes fixed on him from the through the courtyard, and he immediately wept bitterly. He came under the conviction of the person with total perspective. God did not rush rush his restoration. He rushed his repentance. He got him so deeply uh, 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 bowed before God. And God did a deep, deep work in a relatively short period of time. The problem is when you and I are dealing with failed leadership, we are not Jesus. So Jared Wilson makes the case we need to create timelines that are more in line with John the Baptist, bring forth fruit for repentance. We need to be able to evidence it in a person's relationship with God. Are they restored to the Lord? We need to evidence it in are they restored uh, 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 if there's relational fracture, if there's breakdown of trust. How long does it take? 
If a guy violates his marriage covenant while he's in ministry, how long does it take to restore that person? I'll tell you how long it takes. As long as there's, as long, it takes as long as it's needed for the fruit of repentance and for trust to be rebuilt. And sometimes never will a person come back from that, but that's not something the scriptures uh, uh, are forbidding. It's more to do with just the mystery of how life works. But what we're working with is that Peter is restored as a repentant sinner and God is able to fast-track that in a glorious way. I would, I would say we've got to be very careful we don't try and stand in the way of Jesus and feel like we can just pronounce somebody, oh, forgiven, restored, uh, we see your repentance, and very often I think that's where we see some of the, uh, some people's restoration is public, but it's not divine. It's known. It's out there. But it has not yet brought, brought the fruit of repentance. And so discerning godly grief is really necessary. Uh, restoration to fellowship is not the same as restoration to the, uh, the pastorate. And here's the big one. Simon Peter did not restore himself. He is restored by the head of the church and the church's proxies, who are now elders. To us, brothers and sisters, it is a sacred duty to walk people through this amazing, amazing journey. I think I'm going to call it there, just uh, so that we've got a few minutes for Q&A. I just want to say it again. God is not doing impression management in the church. He's not out to safeguard reputations. He is moving through his church with sanctifying fire. And I would rather put my hand up for that than have to experience sanctifying judgment. I'd rather say, Lord, please, let's not make it about anyone else. Whatever God's doing in PJ's life, let's pray for that flame to hit him as much as we would pray for him. Let's pray for our own lives. We need a vision. If you see anyone overtaken a fault, you who are spiritual, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness and be careful lest you also are tempted. We are in in God's sights to restore people, but we're also in God's sights for his warnings. Let's get tighter together. Let's build a review culture in our eldership teams, in all our leadership teams. Let's build a review culture. Uh, It doesn't have to be like ours you just got to make sure that somebody doesn't say, but for I've, I've led you for 15 years, you've never raised any of these issues. But you didn't set the culture for raising the issues, the safety, where you really are inviting that audit. And uh, I really do want to ask you in the fear of the Lord, the love of Christ, I feel his affections, For us today, I feel like we're in a safe space, but we are a movement on the front foot. I believe our future, as Brian said, is brilliant. We are confident. Our swords are on the table. We want to invite you to unite with us. Uh, We signed up in the early days to plant and strengthen churches, and we can do it for another hundred years if we make it more about this stuff, what we are before Christ, if we are open to his deeper work in our hearts and our lives, the innermost part. 
we can do it. And notice, the mission is the constant. Who's leading is the variable. Right through. There are these baton changes. So let's not be too enamored about ourselves, about uh, our, uh, our, our, our sense of you know, how dependent we are on the lead elder to make things happen. Guys, it's going to take teams to fly dreams. Let's be those kind of people. Humble, open. Was that helpful? So, I'll, I'll have a stab if there's anybody sitting there with a... Uh, just make sure your heart is humble. I'm not scared of you. But I do want to encourage us to, uh, to, to, we want clarity. What are we missing? Some of the other guys here, maybe some of the other guys in the room might have just said, hey, Rigby, you missed this. Open to that. Go for it, Andrew. Yeah, I, 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 I I'm, I'm just want to again say it seems like God is blowing the whistle and isn't afraid. Uh, he's not protecting us when we've got egg on our face in, before a watching world. It feels like our stuff is out there and uh, we sit there with our sheriff badges and do all this audit on how bad the world is and the currents and, uh, that are flowing in the waters of culture and, we, we, yeah. and, and the world is doing its own audit on us. So I think you're making a solid point. But judgment begins, according to Peter, in the house of the Lord. We need to be those who are saying... Uh, these moments in our own personal lives and in a movement's history is if we think we're going to plant and strengthen churches in different parts of the world, we need to scoop our poop a bit. We need to be able to say, actually, we haven't always got it right. Uh, we had a situation in Common Ground a few years back where a youth leader was abusing all kinds of kids in our movement, our, our little family of churches with, with online stuff. Uh, it was terrible. Talk about what... And then I went praying in the gardens at Kirstenbosch, and they've got a section which is called um, the Feinbos uh, Garden. Feinbos are those indigenous plants to the Cape. And when I was reading, there's a board that says... And we were about uh, 17 years... No, this is about six years ago, I think. We were about 15 years... Uh, I can't remember the exact timeline, but it did coincide what I read with, with, with this. It says, every, every X number of years, the Feinbos needs to go through a fire for three things. Number one, to send the roots down. Number two, to strengthen it. And number three, to propagate seed. And uh, since that great exposure, when we were online, we just said we... All we could do is apologize that one of our own has prayed on kids. It was brutal. Ryan bore the brunt of that. I was involved in some other stuff, but I remember carrying the weight of it. And we stood on that Sunday. We had seven church pulpits, and every preacher stood up and just wept before our congregation that we could not spare this. And then I realized if we did not find this guy, we laid the charges. He wasn't, it wasn't an external thing. We laid the charges. But if we had not caught that guy, he would have been in another church doing this. Right now, as I speak to you, he's in jail doing impression management, trying to you know, get after the victims, get them to... My point is, the world came after us, but the thing they couldn't fight, we were on Cape Talk, and Ryan was interviewed, 
and they said to him, Cape Talk is like the big talk show, big one in Cape Town. And they said, Ryan, what can you say? And he just said, before anything, I just want to tell you how sorry you are for kids who went through anything. Number two, this happened on our watch, and we can't do anything about what's happened, but we become aware of the fact that our child protection policies need to be addressed, and we're doing everything we can. We are on our knees before God, and uh, we're asking everyone uh, who, who, who needs help. We are paying for counsellors, for everybody out there. The, uh, Kino Cummings, the guy who's the talk show host, he said, Ryan, I just wish every church in Cape Town was that uh, forthright and honest around your reputation. We're so, you know, we're so grateful for you for this. And, and, he, and, he, and, and of course, we didn't go around telling everybody this, but there was a sense of a terrible thing was turned for the good of the gospel, and we've plant, we planted four churches after that. So propagating seed. I'm not sure if I'm answering the question. I'm just saying we do need to, to own our stuff. Uh, remember, the world's always going to hate the church from a, our cultural moment. We're in exile, but let's be in exile for righteousness' sake not for flawed leadership sake. Yeah. You, you asked the question way better the second time. <laughs> but I'm agreeing with you. I think it's brilliant. I think we need to take much more time. And we've got to ask those questions. If you needed to have all these qualifications fulfilled on the way in, when you're being restored, every one of those things are back on the table and particularly if the nature of the sin involved the way this leader has interacted with the world, uh, with others externally, uh, I think it's a long, long way for that person to come back. And even when it comes to like uh, uh, the sin of adultery, uh, that very often involves somebody, sometimes in the church, terribly, but sometimes externally, if that's known in the marketplace, the idea of promoting that uh, is in, in terms of restoration to full, there may be another gracious way that the person might not carry the same level of responsibility. Chris, you've, you've raised such a good issue because it's never acceptable. Notice, it's restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. They should never feel like we don't care. There are very... Definitely exceptions to how that can be experienced. We've got to do everything we can to get the care to those people. Uh, like a person could be in jail. You might not be the one to give the care, but we want to make sure they get the care, whatever it is. But uh, that notion of applying the textbook of what happens when somebody... That's, that's why I'm, we've done this talk today, is we need to have a vision for restoration.